some of the most iconic piece of entertainment, the Doctor Trilogy, Man of Steel, Foundation Season 1, Season 2, and the seminal work of science fiction, it would have to be Foundation. Incredibly difficult to adapt. In order for it to work, it had to appeal to a larger audience than people like yourselves or myself. What do you look at and say, that was very successful? It's hard as an artist to write something and direct something and put your heart and your soul into something and then give it out to the world and then have people you know pick it apart. At the same time, you can't make decisions based on what you think the audience will want. Piece of pop culture that has influenced them was last 20, 15, 20 years. The Dark Knight is up there. Talk about your process, Nolan's process. We got very lucky. Warner Brothers was desperate. And because they were desperate, they were open to the idea of innovation. A studio calls you, they give you a piece of IP, and they're like, hey, make this into an amazing movie. Where do you start? Ladies and gentlemen, this is a very, very special episode of the Arti and Sriram show. Now, I have introduced guests before with all sorts of emotions. There are people I've admired. Uh, there are people I've grown up watching, you know, do amazing things on TV. But this individual, not only am I a huge fan of his work, but the overwhelming emotion I feel when I talk, think about this person is <laughs> total jealousy. Right, because <laughs> you, David Esgoyer, have the career and the life that ten-year-old me would have killed to have had. So, let me just kind of read out a few phrases which would tell you why you know you know I'm just so envious of David, and if there's a way I could kind of steal his life, I would. Uh, the doc, the Dark Knight trilogy uh, with Nolan, uh, Man of Steel, Batman versus Superman. Uh, Foundation season one, season two, and probably many, many more seasons to come. Which, by the way, if you folks haven't seen Foundation season two till the finale, stop watching, go watch it. We just watched it and we are like, it's amazing, blows your mind. And so much more work in comics, in TV, and movie to come. David, you are a legend. I'm so jealous of you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. <laughs> I I appreciate and I, I appreciate the introduction. It's it's always funny. To hear someone say something like that ex externally from you, because I'm I'm just doing my thing, and I have my life and my wife and my three kids, and you know we're complaining about this thing or that, or you know we're just normal people like everyone else. And I've I've got my challenges. By the way, I'm wearing a Foundation Crew shirt right now. I like uh, it. I like it. We uh, I I thought it would be. Uh, all the different departments on Foundation sort of made their own shirts, whether it be the art department, the transportation department. So there's maybe 10 or 12 different kind of cr crew shirts floating around. Oh, my gosh. Okay. I might need to hit you up and see whether you can sneak me. If you, I mean, but I, I just I, I just genuinely mean that because uh, for both Aarti and me, you know, if you think about our childhood influences, for me, growing up in India, one was the Chris Reeve Superman movies. Right. Like, you know, sure. You know, that theme, the John Williams score hits and it takes me a different place. And you obviously worked on, you know, the, the next incarnation of that Batman watching Keaton, well, Keaton's back watching Keaton, like iconic. But when I was I really got into reading sci fi and I think Odyssey Clark and Asimov were probably two of the biggest influences and no self-respecting nerd in Silicon Valley has not grown up being inspired by foundation, right? Like, and psychohistory. Sure. And 
sure. kind of, you know, and by the way, growing up, I was in India, I was like, oh, Hari Sildan is maybe he's an Indian name, you know, maybe he's in India. So there were so many different things. And the fact that you have basically gotten access to the toy box and created, you know, and I'm saying this not a flattery, some of the most iconic pieces of entertainment, just truly amazing. So this is quite the honor. Okay. So I want to get into a lot of all of it, right? And I want to start with Foundation, which uh, Aarti and I, we binge watch, you know, well, uh, we kind of caught up on a bunch of episodes and we watched season two. And now I want to start with maybe because it's season one, season two, but Foundation, if I think about it as a story, right? It is notoriously hard to adapt. And by the way, I'm sort of a nerd. I invest, I do tech stuff. You know, I don't create uh, entertainment like you do. But a few things. Number one, if I recall, and you should correct me, Asimov never kind of pieced it together as he kind of made it up as he went along. It was never really meant to be like one cohesive book. Retconned a bunch of stuff in with like, you know, uh, yes. the, the robotic stuff. <laughs> Two is there is no central character, right? Like there's like, you know, the it's the idea of psychohistory. But then, you know, Harry Seldon shows up with every crisis and they're like, oh, it's a new set of characters. And oh, then you have the mule and blah, blah, blah. So, and it was kind of no, one of these kind of the things that notorious, oh, it's never going to show up. So maybe talk to me about like, and I know you're a fan of the books, like, when that something like shows like, how do you even like put your hands around and be like, all right, how do I take this and make this into compelling stuff that we can watch on our couch? Where do you even start? Ah, uh, well, it's it's almost the Bible of science fiction. I mean, I, I think if if you were to pick the seminal work of science fiction, it would have to be Foundation, whether it's Star Wars or Dune, all of these things that came in the shadow of it. And I'm an enormous fan of Arthur C. Clarke and Frederick Pohl and Alfred Bester and all the other sort of um, classics. But I, I think if you had to pick one book in science fiction, it would be Foundation or one series of books. So it, it, it has this hallowed place in the hearts of people like yourself and your peers in the tech industry uh, and is really the Bible of science fiction. But as you rightly said, it started up as a fix-up novel, a series of, of short stories. There's very little continuity from one story or novella to the next. We jump forward hundreds of years. Uh, he was making it up as he was going along. He didn't originally envision this. Uh, he ended up writing some sequels and some prequels in which he retconned and changed a bunch of things. Um, incredibly difficult to adapt. And, you know, we were forced to figure out how, how do we, A, in order for it to work, it had to appeal to a larger audience than people like yourselves or myself, right? It had to appeal to people that did not think of themselves as readers of science fiction in the same way that Game of Thrones, I think, broke some of the barrier for, uh, found a, uh, sorry, for fantasy. Um, there was no way to make it without a significant budget. So we had to reach a fairly large audience. You know, Asimov is famously, um, his characters are not particularly well drawn, most of them. A lot of them are mouthpieces for ideas. Uh, there's very little action. A lot of things happen off screen. It's a lot of people talking in rooms. There aren't any female characters in the first book because the reader audience at the time in the late 40s and 50s was almost exclusively men. There, there were a few women that were writing under male pen names. So we had to update the metaphors that he was working with. He was writing in a post-World War II environment. Then we had to come up with some continuity because 
no one was going to green light an anthological show. No one. There was a short period after Black Mirror where people were also greenlighting anthological shows. And trust me, that is not something the streamers are interested in right now. So we had to figure out using some of the tropes of science fiction, how can we have some of these characters continue on? The first thing we did is decide that Harry is not just a recording that you can't interact with, which he is in the books, but he's an, an AI, a digital being that can you can continue to interact with. And, and, um, and that decision in and of itself somewhat changes the premise of Foundation because he continues on as an existing character. We had to figure out how to um, make other characters through the use of cryogenic sleep. Right. Uh, they could continue onward. Uh, Asimov had this character, Demerzel, who was a robot that appeared in the prequels. We brought that character into the um, roughly what we're adapting the original trilogy. That character is a robot and long lips, so that character can span the centuries. And then we had to figure out a character that could embody empire. So even though there is uh, an Emperor Cleon in the books, briefly mentioned in one of the stories, shows up a little bit in the in the prequels, not particularly well drawn. And that's how we arrived at the idea of these cloned emperors. And so even though we were jumping forward a century or two centuries at a time, and even though they are different characters, the audience at least has the same faces that they feel like the same characters in kind of ways. And so that was the big aha experience. And then that led to us exploring in lots of different ways. One of the themes of foundation of, of Asimov's stories and books is do we live in a deterministic future or not, right? Does psycho, does psycho history truly have everything mapped out uh, does the individual matter? Psychohistory would say no. And yet, if you look at Asimov's writing, he kind of equivocates between what they call the great man theory, in right. which these individuals will show up and, and affect the course of history. He does kind of equivocate. I mean, the, the mule does that. He goes back and forth between this kind of deterministic future that psychohistory is mapped out in individuals affecting great change. And that became our main theme for the show as well. Obviously, I think a lot of the audience would like to believe that we don't live in a deterministic future in which mathematically nothing that we do matters. I mean, the audience is going to want, you know, the former. They're going to want to feel that their lives matter, that, that they can leave a mark on history. And so the central theme of our show is exploring the tension between those two ideas and then using the characters to explore that as well. So then with the clones, they're trying to individuate. They're trying to do, do they matter or are they just puppets? Uh, with Demerzel, does she matter? Does she have agency or is she trapped by psychohistory? Does the Harry AI have agency and personhood? And then that also led to something that's not in the books, but this idea of memory right. and whether or not if we were to lose our memory, we are still we, we are still us. So th these are big, heady ideas. And a lot of the main ideas 
that we explore in the show are also the ideas that are explored in the books. But we also have the benefit of a lot of technology that has arisen in the 70 odd years since Asimov was first writing those stories. We weren't cloning humans. Uh, We couldn't edit the human genome. Artificial intelligence didn't exist. All of these things that we can add to our tool chest. I believe if he were writing Foundation now, uh, Harry would have been interactive, would have been an AI. It's it's logical to assume that. Right. Um, anyway, that was a long answer. No, no, no. This is, there's so much to unpack over there. And, you know, I think one of the many accomplishments of the show, and again, because I'm fanboying out here, is that one, making it accessible to a broader audience. And you're always going to have this, I think, this tension of how do we bring the core fan base along and they're always going to hate it. They're going to be like, it's not right with the book, blah, blah, blah. Right. But then, you know, take something that's kind of this dense sci-fi concept heavy thing and make it broader. That's number one. Um, and I think the second part was, I I think the devices that you folks invented, especially the Cleons and the Genetic Dynasty, um, mm-hmm. in some ways, maybe even, and the moving chroma, which are kind of tiny, you know, a lot of these things are almost more interesting than Asimov's psychohistory itself. Like, because, you know, I'm curious, like, when you think about the 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 living emperor, it kind of ties into some of the longevity themes that we hear in, like, actual tech yeah. society today. Have you thought about that? Have you heard from, say, CEOs and others being like, oh, you know, I want to do what Leon's doing. I want to actually, you know, like, reproduce myself. and of course. I mean, people are experimenting with longevity, getting blood transfusions from, you know, younger people, seeing what we can do with teleomeres. Uh, you know, some mm-hmm. kooky people already are, you know, have plans that cryogenically freeze their bodies or their heads or, you know, digitize their consciousness. I don't think we're there yet. But but of course, I mean, longevity, influence, all these CEOs... I mean, they want to believe they are, they fall into the category of the great man theory. I mean, they want to believe that, which sometimes I find ironic because so many of them, uh, look, I don't know Elon Musk. I know he loves foundation, right? But psychohistory would say that the great man theory doesn't exist. And yet he himself seems to be striving to do that, which is, which is human. So there is a tension between that. Um, and there's absolutely a tension between what I would call the diehard book purists that want a hard science fiction show and the broader audience. And we have to try to walk this narrow path between these two audiences and hold both of them in, in mind. Um, so, uh, David, I think following on to what Sriram had asked, to me, when I look at science fiction shows, you know, our lives and we, you know, our entire careers have been in tech building products were very, 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 very heavily inspired by science fiction. Uh, mm-hmm. Like this is the reason we got into computers. This is the reason we were like obsessed with trying to build these big systems and things like this. You know, and Sriram especially grew up watching Star Trek back in India, and uh, that shaped a lot of how we think about systems and frameworks and how we think about technology and all of that to this day. And so I'm for me, you know, I've always wanted to ask. You know, you're, you're, you're with foundation and even, you know, just with the work that you've done, what do you, you look at as that was very successful? Like for you, is it more like a tactical thing? Is it more like 
downloads, people watching or subreddit specific comments? Or do you look at it in this like arc of time where you're like, I inspired somebody else to go off and do this or build this or start a company? What do you look at and say either short term or long term is that was very successful? That's a varied answer, of course. One measure of success for me is do I get to keep making more seasons, right? So on a really selfish level, I enjoy making the show. It inspires me. It's incredibly hard. It takes a lot out of me. It's hard on my family because I'm over in Europe at least half the year. So selfishly, as long as I'm getting paid to create something that I love and I have really loved the process as hard as it is with something like Foundation, as long as I get to keep doing it and make art, that's all I care about. For whatever reason, Apple would decide to continue the show or not continue the show. Mm -hmm. I hope that the show is successful enough that it's driving viewers to Apple. I... It's not the be all and the end all to to get good, you know, critical feedback, although this season has had almost unanimously good critical feedback yep. and very good fan feedback. It, it, it all falls into the mix. But it, it's funny. I had this experience earlier in my career. 1998, I had two movies come out, Blade and Dark City. Yeah. So, and my career really took off after those two movies came out. Blade at the time was extremely successful with the box office, but the critics savaged it. I mean, since then, it's taken on a new life and a new appreciation, but the critics hated it. And Dark City came out totally bombed at the box office, but the critics loved. So I had both experiences and it's it's unusual to have a situation where you have a film or a television show that is both critically acclaimed and a kind of financial success. Right. Um, and foundation definitely seems to be that. Uh, I don't know that it's, it's probably not Game of Thrones yet, but the audience is building and certainly the critical acclaim is built. And and that feels good. And look, we're we're artists. I don't know on the tech side if you feel that this, but... It's hard as an artist to write something and direct something and put your heart and your soul into something and then give it out to the world and then have people, you know, pick it apart yeah. on Reddit, whatever. Oh, like, yeah. This this is crap or I don't believe this or blah, that's lazy writing. It's hard. And it's hard not to take it personally yeah. and not get depressed if people don't receive something in a certain way. And every artist, every peer of mine struggles with that. Right now, I'm in a little bit of a halo because season two seems to have been well-received critically and by fans, but I know that's ephemeral. I know that could go away. I know if we do a third season, it could not be well as well-received, or if I do another project, it, it, you just don't know. So that's, that's hard, and at the same time, you have to, you can't let that distract you. You can't make decisions based on what you think the audience will want. I think it's the Steve Jobs, I'm paraphrasing. You can't give the audience what they want. You have to give them what they don't know they want. Uh, And if you you fall into that trap where you're trying to guess ahead of time what the audience will want, you've just lost the plot completely. And sometimes 
that's a tension with the studios or the streamers because they will do their research and they will say, well, our research tells us X, right? And I'm very leery of that because it's, you know, how were the questions phrased? They're responding to this in a vacuum without the marketing and without a framework. And, you know, by and large, I would say Apple, my experience with Apple, I I think I can safely say that my experience with Apple creatively has been the best experience I've ever had in my career, which is kind of amazing because they're a big tech company. And in in what ways? They have largely, you know, in almost unanimously backed my creative decisions, even when, you know, they express their opinion, the executives there and say, we're not sure about this character. We're not sure about this arc. But when push came to shove, almost there are a few times that that um, we reached a compromise. Nine times out of 10, more than that. If, if I really dug my heels and they said, okay, okay, we'll go with what you want. And, and I did not expect that. Mm. I really didn't. And that has not been my experience throughout the bulk of my career. Which, which is amazing because your resume is quite something. I want to come back to something a little, you said a little bit earlier because I think it has ties to how we deal in tech, which is in tech, you ship something, a lot of people have thoughts, and then you're already working on the next version. Right. Right. And then you can you can upgrade it. Yeah. Well, and then you have an issue of like, uh, do I keep going on the path that I'm already on uh, because the train's kind of already leaving the station or do I react to this feedback coming in and then figure out, oh, I need to switch things or do I go, no, no, hold on. I have good stuff. I'm just laying pipe. I have good stuff coming for you. And obviously where I'm going with this is season one. Right. Like really good season two. I think for us, a lot of people dramatically better. How many things do you go like when people had thoughts in season one, you were like, trust us, we know what we're doing to get there. We need to do this. And how many times and I would love examples where you're like, all right, maybe we need to take a slightly different direction here. It's a little bit of both. I mean, because this show is so complicated, it it roughly takes about two years to make a season. Mm -hmm. So by the time season one had come out, we had already written season two. And um, I can't remember whether or not season uh, we had started shooting season two. I think we might have started shooting. We were, uh, but I did take, you know, when we went to write season two, I went through with my writers and talked about with Apple. What are the things that we felt we did well? And let's take an honest assessment. What are the things that we felt we could do better at? What are the things we're good at? What are the things maybe we're not so good at? Can we shift some of those things? So that was some a process that I had started already. It was an honest examination, soup to nuts, going through every department, stunts, costume, ev- everything. VFX vendors, what worked, what didn't work, where, we, where can we do better? And I'd done like a Reddit uh, AMA in season one and, and I'd, listen to the, some of the feedback. And you're absolutely right. Some of the feedback is just simply, there was expositional pipe that we had to lay no matter what. That was in the same way that season one of Game of Thrones did, that we just had to, had to lay it. And a lot of people that have watched season two have now gone back and watched season one and said, oh, I get it now. 
that that's much more pleasurable for me now. Then there were challenges with COVID that were incredibly difficult to surmount. Scenes that we could only shoot part way, actors we couldn't bring back, limitations to how many extras we could have. Uh, it's not an excuse. The audience can only assess what they see on screen, but but it's true. And there were there were creative compromises I made in season one more on season one with Skydance and Apple because nothing had come out yet. Once they saw the finished product, they said, oh, we like this. We think you know what you're doing. And then they gave me yeah. more free reign. And then there was some feedback uh, yeah, online that I took to heart. Mm-hmm. And I said, oh, okay, that's, that's fair. You know, uh, that's, and it, it, and it, and it tracks with what I'm thinking, mm-hmm. you know, uh, is there something, and, is, is there something and feel free yeah. to just not share, is there something you can share directionally where you were like, okay, the folks on Reddit for once have a point and I'm going to maybe, you know, take this slightly different path than before. Well, some of it was Terminus. Uh, the Terminus storyline was not as well liked as the Empire's storyline. And and that's fine. That's valid. I get it. Terminus was dusty. Empire was good and soapy. Um, I I completely understand that. And And other than the first episode, there really is no direct conflict between Empire and the Foundation. So that's hard. So you have to come up with a storyline for uh, both of them individually. So you have to come up with a threat for Empire, which was Luminism that didn't exist right. in the books. Right. And we have to extrapolate on the first crisis um, for the foundation. And so one of the things that I immediately thought of was how do we get Harry Selden or a version of Harry Selden and Empire back in the same room again. Mm-hmm. Because that wasn't by design. Uh, they weren't going to be back in the same room again, at least until season three. And that's what led me to the idea of, of Harry uh, putting a sliver of himself into Constant and then confronting Empire and doing this almost replay of a scene we'd done in the first episode. I got that idea because I thought, Oh, that was really juicy. And then that led me, originally, Empire wasn't supposed to go to, to Terminus until season three. Ooh. And I said, hey. can I bring that forward? And then can I do something that they never did in the books, which, which is actually have Cleon go down to Terminus. Mm. Right. And, and, and that really, and so now what's happening is the foundation storyline and the Empire storyline are inextricably linked and they're on this collision course. And it's not just one solid story and another solid story. They're the same story. And so as a result of that feedback, I, that led me and my fellow writers to figure out how do we get Selden and the, the current Cleon day 17, how do we get them in a room again a few times, which we could not have done if we followed the original I, books. Yeah, yeah. I love I, it. I will say, when, when uh, uh, Cleon uh, makes it to Terminus, my jaw drops. Yeah, I'm like, oh, Sriram and I looking at each other going, they, he's going for it. He's actually going to go do this. It's just like, you know, there's a lot of like, 
I'm going to go, I'm going to show up. And then he actually like makes a trip. And then there's you know, Harry Seldon and you can see these, it's, it's very, the, the whole imagery is so powerful and uh, yes. surprising. It's this element of just surprise and delight. Yeah. Me. Um, before we move foundation, you know, because I, I was promising myself, I don't want to fanboy too much for particular scenes, but there are friends of mine who love a couple of scenes and I'm curious to get quickly your take on why they kind of work so much. Um, and one from this season, the Belrios Hoberbala drink that they share. Yes. Uh, right before, you know, they obviously die. Talk to us a little bit about the origin of the scene, how it comes around. Like, why is it so powerful? Because everyone is so moved by the scene. Because it's so simple, just two characters talking and having a laugh. Why does it work? How did it come about? Well, that was, that was a scene that I had in my head from the very beginning when we were building season two. And I, I knew that Hober had this treasured bottle of wine. You, you, you've heard of Chekhov's gun, which is yeah, yeah. this idea of, you know, a plot device being introduced early on in the story that will inevitably use, be used later on in the story. Yep. So this was Chekhov's wine. Uh, and so I knew he had this precious bottle of wine and that at some point in the season, he would drink it. And our first thought was that he would drink it with Constant after they were reunited and I just thought that's too easy. And so I always try to challenge ourselves. And, and I knew that these two men who were very different, Ober and Bell, were on a collision course with one another. Mm-hmm. And so I worked backwards. I decided I want to have Ober drink the wine with Bell. And I want to have the wine not be good because that also subverts expectations. <laughs> yeah. And so I, I worked backwards. I, I, you know, James Cameron calls it writing towards something. So I said, how do I get these two together? And I knew that Bell was going to die a noble death and it would be in Defying Empire. I wasn't sure about Hober, but ultimately I decided that was the correct way to go as well. And the interesting thing about Hober, I will say, is, and I saw some of the fans saying this, they were uncertain about him when he was introduced in episode three. They said, oh, totally this is goofy. This is off. And to be honest, um, my partners at Apple were also uncomfortable. They said, oh, this is a big tonal shift. And I just said to Apple, just go with me. Go with me. We're going to start this character in a goofy place. And over the course of the season, he's going to drop all of these defenses and become more earnest and become a hero and then he's going to die. And because he started off as one thing and became something else, it's going to break our hearts even more. Yes, it's sort of reminds you of like a Han Solo style swashbuckling con man yes. leading to this one. Now, very quick, I want to ask you about the other scene. And honestly, when I talked a lot about friends in tech, which may tell you something about friends in tech, the overwhelming favorite season scene of the last two seasons is from season one, I think it's day 15, I forget which day, when he sentences the... Uh, Assassin. Azura. Azura. Yeah. You, uh, what is maybe the worst fate possible with a Twitch of Speakers? Now, this may be because my friends want to have the power over other human beings. That may be a, a factor in here. No. But uh, talk to us a bit about that because I think that's maybe one of the things I love about that because for a show which is so amazing on VFX, visually stunning and creative, that scene is just two people talking in the most idyllic yes. setting with just yes. a few things. So, why does, talk to us a little bit about that scene. Well, 
Many scenes are a group effort, right? I've got about six other writers and we add various things, you know, to the scenes and pitch scenes. But, you know, episode 10 of season one, I wrote myself and um, I set myself a challenge. And the challenge was literally, can I do a scene with Brother Day and Azura with no visual effects at all and no action, only talking? And can I come up with the most monstrous fate for this character possible? So I was racking my brain and racking my brain and racking my brain to come up with just what is the most monstrous thing I could possibly think of doing to someone? Mm-hmm. And that's what I came up with. And, and it is a, and it's chilling because number one, it, it shows you the, the assets, the, the, the power that he can command, right? That he could track all these people down, thousands of people and have, you know, them all under surveillance. It shows you how monstrous he is in terms of his his vanity and his capacity to be sadistic. And um, and it's it's you know it's a, it's a chilling scene. And but then again, one of the other things that we do on the show is is we do a lot of uh, visual symmetry. So there was a scene in this season, uh, episode seven, in which the current day meets with Sarah in the same location. Mm-hmm. And that was very much by design. I said, I want to go back to this location. It was in the script. I, I, I want them to sit there in the same place. The audience will have a sense memory of what happened there before. And from the get-go, without even saying anything, the audience is just going to get more and more and more uncomfortable. Yeah. And, and, and just worry for Sarah. And worry that he's going to do something similar to her. And he comes very close to it. And so it's, uh, there are lots of, you know, there's lots of symmetry, visual clues, visual pairings, visual motifs that we do throughout the show. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes people pick them up. Sometimes people don't pick them up. Or if they go back on a rewatch, they pick them up. We're trying to make a show that people can watch more than once. Yeah. And, 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 and pick up associations that they may not have been able to pick up the first time. You know, when you talk about the visual element, my couple favorite things, and we'll, we'll stop after this, Shriram. I know you have a lot to go cover yeah. today. Um, one was, uh, you know, you mentioned Chekhov's gun. For me, the castling device. And yes. right end, uh, when the, he applies it on Day, you know, the emperor, and uh, gets, like, you know, pushed out of the, the spacecraft. Like, that I thought was cool, but... Belrios switches his uniform to what the emperor was wearing, and now suddenly he's much more powerful because he's the one who like figured it out and he's alive in this moment. Yes. And with this like juxtaposition in this visual imagery of power transference uh, through yes. this this chain link kind of you, the outfit that he's got, I thought was just really beautifully done, especially when he's like sipping wine, but he's in this like emperor's garb. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Well. Say I well, look. I I'm glad you appreciated that. And 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 again, we're we're playing around with visual metaphors because there was a discussion with his husband Glaywin Pryor. Basically, what if we take over? Yeah. What if you become emperor? Right. right. And for a variety of reasons, Bell didn't want to do that. But by 
putting him in the emperor's clothes, literally at the end, yeah. you get to see a tiny glimpse of like, well, what would the world yeah. be like? What would the galaxy be like under the rule of Emperor Rio? Brilliant. Yeah. Just so brilliant. And, you know, um, we're going to end the foundation part, but I would just want to say if folks haven't, you know, like what an amazing piece of work. And I can't wait for season three. I know you're going to get more into three laws of robotics, Demerzel, there's so much more to go on there. I can't wait. Now, I, you know, the other part I want to talk to you about is, and, you know, if any, if you talk to anybody who's kind of like a kindred spirit and you ask about some of the piece of pop culture that has influenced the most last 20, 15, 20 years, uh, the Dark Knight is up there, right? Uh, you yeah. know, um, it is an iconic cornerstone of pop culture, you know, similar to Jurassic Park, you know, Jaws, you know, uh, it's iconic. Uh, and I remember, everyone kind of remembers watching it for the first moment. And it's interesting because when I think about that, it's you and this guy called Christopher Nolan, who's made a couple of movies since then, much earlier in your career, right? He wasn't, quote unquote, Christopher Nolan now. You, you are obviously much earlier in your career. And you're given the Batman franchise with uh, Batman Begins. And for some folks, maybe kind of here in tech or don't work in the creative arts, right? You're given this franchise, right? It's kind of coming off the whole, uh, you know, kind of the you know, the campy versions, Batman Forever, Batman Robin, uh, et cetera, the, the Joel Schumacher uh, stuff, you know, maybe almost kills the franchise, as uh, Clooney says. And now we are given the franchise, right? Talk to us a little bit about the process. I mean, you folks are obviously, first of it's incredibly creative. Talk about your process, Nolan's process of, okay, how do you make decisions about tone, villain, character, story, art? Because there's so many ingredients and Lego pieces you're trying to juggle. So when you're given that, how does it, how do you even decompose? How do you go about that? I think the, we got very lucky and I'll, and I'll explain why. Um, and I do think this is, is, is a, something that can be ported into the tech industry, right? Um, even by the time we were being approached, Batman was a massive property for Warner Brothers. They'd already had the Tim Burton movies, a little bit diminishing returns with the Schumacher movies, but uh, they'd had animated shows. It was a massive, massive property, uh, arguably their most valuable property. Uh, and that in Superman, uh, and when you have something valuable like that, you become risk averse as, as a corporation, you become, you don't want to damage the so-called IP. I particularly don't like the phrase IP because we're talking about creative works. You don't want to damage the IP. So you become risk averse, but the problem with becoming risk averse, right, is you get diminishing returns. It, 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 you know, the audience wants risk. The audience wants change. And so these two ideas are in conflict with one another. We were lucky because the prior Batman film had been the least successful. It had been maligned by the audience. Warner Brothers had already spent eight years trying to develop other versions of Batman that had gone nowhere, in many cases by screenwriters that I knew personally. So, so the, the IP, Batman as an idea, had become a joke with the audience and was considered broken. And because it was broken, because 
the last eight years, none of those attempts to reignite the franchise worked. Warner Brothers was desperate. And because they were desperate, they were open to the idea of innovation. Right. In a way that they would not have been normally, right? And so it sounds revolutionary at the time, but what we pitched is what if we play it for real? What if it's not campy? What if the psychology involved is real? What if the technology is as real as we can make it? And it sounds like a no-brainer now, but that was considered shocking when we proposed it. Everyone said, that's not how you do a superhero movie. That's, that's not you know, how you do Superman or the Sam Raimi Spider-Man films. Um, but, but because the franchise had been fallen into ill favor, Warner Brothers was willing to take a risk, to take a gamble. And it's interesting because I, I can point to another example in a way, which is the Barbie movie that's come out right now. Right? Yes. yes. Okay. They've been developing that for years. They, now, they took a big risk. That's a... And I like the movie. I watched the movie. I took my... my uh, one of my kids and a bunch of his friends and I got to experience this and some of them are trans and some it was a a they took a lot of risks in that movie. They did not play it safe. Right. And whoever decided at Warner Brothers or Mattel to do that, to make a movie that was self-reflexive and feminist, to poke fun at toxic masculinity, that was a very canny decision. It was they, they did not play it safe, and and you see the yeah. rewards. No, can I can I can I run a theory past you in technology? Sure. We sometimes have this term called a person who's an architecture astronaut, where instead of building a thing that people love, you sort of fall in love with building architecture for something in the future which may or may not happen. And mm -hmm. I have a theory that one of the things that you know with Batman Begins is that. The, uh, are you an Iron Man with, you know, which kind of famously kind of came together kind of haphazardly, there was no pressure of having to build a franchise. You didn't yes. have to design, leave all these things and, you know, uh, um, and be like, oh, this thing is going to show up and this character is show up. And I compare this obviously to sort of the, the DC universe where, and maybe in some cases to what's happening at Marvel now, where I think, you know, and where, and you know, I you know, I I thought Man of Steel is a fantastic movie, and Batman vs Superman is a fantastic movie. But there is a world where there is another Man of Steel movie with Henry Cavill, who is an amazing Superman, and it's less like you're less trying to build a franchise. You're just like, okay, I'm just going to tell this amazing story, and maybe the last movie that's fine. Yeah, I, I that's true, and that is something that we battle in the entertainment industry all the time. Is and and the temptation to run before you walk is extreme. The temptation to say, oh, we're going to plan three movies. And and that was something that, to his credit, Chris Nolan doggedly resisted. He, as we were building the first movie, he just said, I, I don't even want to talk about a sequel. I If we have a good idea, sometimes we would come up with an idea and say, well, that would make sense maybe in a sequel. And he would say, let's see if we can do it now. You know, use your good ideas now. We can always come up with another idea. It's 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 a lot of franchises go astray 
because of that. Uh, because they, what they forget is that they have to start with a good movie that feels like a complete meal that has a beginning, middle, and end. Yeah. Uh, and and not that is not just a setup for something else. Yep. And and you know you we have to be wary as as filmmakers that as we build these universes, right? That they don't become too inside baseball. That they yeah. don't, you know, because then then they start for these to work. My wife has to buy into them. Yeah. Who doesn't consider herself a, necessarily a fan of these? So if she watches something and feels like I don't understand what's going on because they're referencing all these characters that are not even from the previous movie, but from other movies that have nothing to do with this movie yeah. or this franchise. I think there's a danger of getting diminishing returns and actually having your audience contract and contract and contract. Uh, totally. I think, you know, I think of, for example, I was a huge MCU fan, like any other self and comic book nerd. And I remember the excitement when you had like, you know, the post credit sequence and it was like, oh my goodness, I can't believe there's reference at character. But I think when I see those post credit sequence now, my level of excitement is so diminished for a few reasons. Number one, some of those things never had payoffs. You're like, I never knew, like, Hercules showed up. I had no, no idea what happened to that guy, right? Like, I'm pretty sure I'm not sure I'm going to see him again. Right? I mean, there is so many of those. And it just, it's expands so much as opposed to, you know, if, for example, look at Pace 1 MCU, you're like, okay, I, I kind of followed the Thanos Infinity Gauntlet story and I knew where this was all headed. Okay, all right. So I think a large part of our podcast is we want to try and break down the systems of people who are not in tech, right? And, you know, uh, like a mini masterclass, if you will. And yes. your productivity is amazing. For example, you know, I love the story, for example, how you just came with Man of Steel doing a break while working with Nolan on, you know, you're stuck on a plot. Just, you just, you, your productivity and creative output is amazing. But maybe talk to us through just the bare bones of, you know, a studio calls you, they give you a piece of IP and they're like, hey, make this into an amazing movie, right? You can hire a team of writers, you can put stuff together and you're sitting in your office where do you start? Do you start on your laptop? Do you, when you get a whiteboard, you just kind of take a nap and dream. How does this walk us through the process? Look, I try to be very deliberative about it. Um, if it's based on a pre-existing work, and so many TV shows and films are these days, because the conventional wisdom is if it worked in some other medium, then it might work by the you know transitive power of storytelling in 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 the second or third medium. Uh, what I first try to say is, okay, I'm going to look at whatever this is, this book, this movie, this comic book character, and I'm going to see if I can identify the core DNA of what makes Batman Batman or what makes Foundation Foundation. And if the writer or the creator is alive, I, I ask them, do you? You know, I make I come up with a list. These ten things, these bullet points. Do you agree? When uh, in adapting Sandman, uh, Alan Heinberg and I did that with Neil Gaiman. By the way, huge fan. We are huge fans of Gaiman and Sandman. That adaptation blew our mind because I know that there have been previous versions with uh, Joseph Gordon, etc. There have been, but this one is just like fantastic, and the cats, everything was just brilliant, totally brilliant. Well, thank you. So. In that case, we had Neil, and we said, do we think these are the core elements that make Sandman Sandman? Yes. And then are, are there any things that in just your mind we should never do? 
And so with Batman, we met with the editors of DC Comics, Chris and I, for three days in New York with Foundation. Uh, I had lots of interaction with Robin Asimov, Asimov's daughter. And so I say, okay, have I, de- I, I, have I identified these core elements? And then I go back to the studio or the streamer and say, okay, these are the core elements. Are, are we in agreement that these are the core elements? Let's just make sure we're starting from the same place. And if we are, then I say, now let's construct a story and make sure we don't betray these core elements. Because if we do, it's not going to work because we're fighting the DNA of the project. And so sometimes it happens that you meet and the studio says, no, we don't agree, or that's not what we want. And in my case, because I'm fortunate enough to turn down projects, I say, well, then I'm the wrong person to do this. Uh, But it's really important to make sure that you and your partners at the streamers or studios are, are even perceiving the same reality before right. you build a story. Right. Uh, and, and that's not always the case. Um, okay, so you have that, right? Now, one of the things when we met earlier, you know, one of the things you said which really blew me away was like the idea of the writer's room because uh, for a lot of people who are not familiar with Hollywood, you know, you often have this mindset of, oh, there's a solo genius who goes off, you know, bangs out late night something on a typewriter or script and then you get like a final order. But that's not how it works. Like you ha- you're very collaborative. You have a te- you know, offer of work in a room with a team of people. Some of them have different skill sets. So how does that process work? What does a meeting, writers meeting even look like? Like, you know, what is a conference room? How are you folks like, because the creative endeavor seems so personal and intimate and you have these ideas of like kind of the struggling solo artist genius, but then you have a team of people who are coming up with amazing outputs. So, and you're managing them as much as like yes. basically being an individual contributor, uh, you know, in kind of tech parlance. So talk to us about setting up such a room. What makes it work? Hiring, motivation. Walk us through that. Well, the vast majority of shows are created by multiple writers. There's a few shows where a writer will write every single episode, but, but the vast majority of them is with a team of writers and a team of directors. Which is why you have a showrunner that sits above the directors uh, in television. In, in movies, the director has the final say. But if you're working with multiple directors and multiple episodes and multiple writers, you need someone to sit atop of it to maintain the quality control, to maintain the through line of the story. So I assemble a team and I, I like to assemble people from disparate areas, playwrights, comic book writers, Season one, we had a writer from Weeds and uh, we had a writer uh, from The Shy and we, you know, writers from shows that you would not normally think of as, well, they weren't science fiction shows. Uh, And I only had one other science fiction writer in the room. And I start off with a brain dump. You know, we had a document of 10 or 12 pages of this is what we're thinking these are some of the movies we've been watching. These are some of the books we've been reading. Think about this as we get started. And then we spend about eight weeks breaking the season in a room or over Zoom during the pandemic. Just let's build the superstructure of the show. Uh, I have the final say, but I really try to listen to my team and, you know, if 
five of my other writers are violently opposed to something, most of the time, then I'll, I'll listen to them and, and say, okay, then we won't do that. Mm-hmm. Um, you want to inspire people and feel like they can do their best work and listen to them. And then every once in a while, you have to be the decider. And, or if there's a split decision to say, we're, you know, that's not unlike, I would think, being a project manager. Oh, it's very similar, company. I think. I think what you describe is very much like what a product manager does or like a CEO of like a very product-centric company does, which is you have a disparate skill set of, you know, engineers, designers, product people, and you're trying to kind of, you are the keeper of the vision. It's funny you say that because I often told product managers, you are the showrunner here. I kind of use yeah. the metaphor back. Okay, one last thing, you know, um, we always should ask this because a lot of people watching our show are very young and they're trying to get started, right? And yes. So for somebody who wants to get started, what are their age, want to get started screenwriting or want to get started writing a comic book, what is your kind of, give us your short piece of advice to them who's listening right now. You have to be fearless. You have to share your work with people. You can't be afraid of rejection. You can't be afraid of criticism. A lot of people are going to say no. A lot of people are going to close, slam doors in your face. Uh, I, I, that happened to me when I was starting out, I had a lot of people tell me, no, we're not going to buy this. No, you're not a good writer. No, you're not. You, you just have to be persistent. You have to be tenacious. You have to believe and you should write, create what you know and not what you think the audience wants and not what you think might sell. At the end of the day, the audience tends to respond to things that they feel are authentic, okay? So you can say what you want about foundation. There are some detractors, but it's definitely unlike most things on television. Mm-hmm. It's definitely a big swing, uh, and it is, it is a fusion of Asimov's work and, and my vision and the vision of the other writers and the vision of the other directors and um, we try to be true to what we have created and have it be distinctive. I mean, that's, that's the, the thing I, that I set for myself first and foremost was at, at a bare minimum, I want to create a show that is unlike anything else okay. currently out there. And I think you nailed it here with the pilot, right? With, uh, you know, uh, the thing that goes into the sky and, you know, that exploding season one, the clone dynasty. I know we're out of time. One last, you can be a one-liner. Yes. Give us a teaser if, you know, powers that be allow you to, of something you want to see in season three of Foundation. Ooh, okay. Okay, yeah. I'm about to do a Reddit AMA after this, by the way. Oh, uh, a, a, te- a, a teaser is um, we're going to be seeing season three is very mule-centric. Mm-hmm. Front and center, we will be dealing with the mule. There's... People that have read the books know that there's some tricks behind the mule and there will be some tricks with this mule. Not necessarily. I'm not saying the same, but expect the unexpected. Perhaps we're going to zig when people think we're going to zag. We will be exploring the three laws of robotics much more with regards to Demerzel and Demerzel's condition. Wait, actually, can I ask something? Because you live in a moment where... The AI is the topic of the day. AI yes, alignment, yes. etc. And the origin of all of that is the three laws of robotics. 
right? Yes. So yes. a lot of people watching this, be, actually a lot of our audience is like, you know, in OpenAI and DeepMind, actually dealing with these issues. What should they take away from Asimov and your work with you? Because that, I mean, it's as about as foundational as it gets. Season three explores a lot of that. And I, we intend to explore the benefits and the the dangers of it, perhaps in ways, not in a Terminator way, but in ways that people might not expect. And I would say one last thing I would say is, you know, we've talked about programming AIs to have emotion, to have feelings, to have empathy. But there are also ways that that could go terribly, terribly wrong, even even in the base code programming empathy. And so that's something we will definitely be exploring. Yes. yes. And I think, you know, I know we're out of time. I think that in season two where Demerzel has programming which locks her in into a suboptimal outcome for Empire, that is a real yes. problem in AI. So anyway, um, David, you are a genius. I am so jealous of you. You created some of the most iconic pieces of entertainment. We are such huge fans. Uh, thank you so much for uh, doing this. And, you know, I can only be looking forward to so much more, you know, amazing storytelling with that, from you. But thank you so, so much. This is such a blast. We'll it's my, my pleasure. Thank you for asking me. We would love to have you back for season three so that we can come in and nerd out some. Great. It would be really fun for us. <laughs> Great. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Thanks, David. Thank you.